Welcome to the Disable the Difference podcast. And before we start, we wanted to let you know that if you require a transcript of the episode, there will be a full transcript in the episode description. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Disable the Difference podcast. As a brief introduction, this podcast is geared towards an audience that may not know a great deal about disabilities, but might want to educate themselves to be better allies and active supporters of the disabled community and other communities that intersect with it. We want to fracture the societal perceptions of disability and disable the idea that individuals with disabilities are different from the norm. Now to introduce ourselves, I'm Callie, one of the logistics directors of the organization Disable the Difference, and joining me today is my co-host Grace, my fellow logistics director. Today we are going to be discussing disability in post-secondary institutions and the role of self-advocacy as a disabled individual. We have been granted the pleasure of discussing disability with the incredible Dr. Jeffrey Preston. Hi, Hi. I'm Grace. Today we are joined by Dr. Jeffrey Preston, a professor at King's University College. He teaches disability studies and has a PhD in media studies at Western University. He was born with a rare neuromuscular myopathy and has dedicated his life to advocating a barrier-free life for himself and others with disabilities. Dr. Preston is an excellent example of a role model because he is very ambitious and determined to make society as inclusive as possible. Welcome aboard, Dr. Preston. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me, guys. What is one message surrounding the topic of disability that you wish the entire world could hear and understand? Ooh, that, that is a huge question. I don't even know how to, how to boil it down to one, uh, one thing. Um, so I think, uh, I think I'm gonna get philosophical uh, with, my, with my one thing. Um, I think my, the one thing that I would love for the world to understand uh, is that disability is not what they think it is. Uh, that you basically, if you imagine the word disability as a box, and that box is full of a bunch of things that you've accumulated during your time, uh, pour gasoline on that box, let it on fire, uh, and, and start making a new box. Because fundamentally, the things that were probably in that box to begin with are probably actually not very helpful things. They're probably not things that are particularly useful, both in your understanding of how to help people with disabilities and also your understanding of yourself as a person if you have a disability. Uh, So I would say disability is not at all what you think it is. And that's okay um, because we are working to make new definitions, to have new ways of thinking about uh, what it means to be different. Definitely. That's a really good analogy. I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> Box being lit on fire. <laughs> yeah. This is what happens when you invite a, a, a media studies uh, Foucaultian semi-edition to your, to your podcast. I love it. Add some creativity. Okay. So the second question is, being a disabled individual in an occupation as a professor must have required a lot of self-advocacy mm-hmm. and perseverance. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey what was your biggest obstacle yeah absolutely um it journey is the right word um i think there's there's like your typical education journey the journey that many of us experience uh and then there's like these side quests that get added on uh for students with disabilities in which uh you are required to do this tremendous other labor uh largely justifying your right to be in the classroom and to be accepted as a valid student. 
Um, this is all through the, the lens of not necessarily hatred, not necessarily like an outright desire to oppress, but rooted in this fundamental belief that to have a disability, to have any disability, means that you are fundamentally corrupted in every way. That the inability to walk is then tethered to the inability to think, the inability to talk, uh, the, the inability to do academics. Um, so from a very, very early age, I was routinely tried, they tried to, to basically split me down into uh, what at the time was called special education. Um, the idea was that I had a physical disability and therefore by policy, they should place me in special education. That in order to get attendant care funding, uh, in order to get sort of my, my physical needs, my bodily needs cared for, that I also then must need to be in a special ed classroom. Now, I was extremely fortunate that my parents were uh, very on the ball, um, very interested in, in making sure that I had really the best chance of making it in life. Um, and from a very young age, my parents really raised me with this idea that um, I was going to have to fight for most of the things in my life. Um, and that obviously on the one hand sucks, but on the other hand, um, face the challenge, uh, you know, um, that there is a bit of an opportunity to be a bit of a master of your own destiny, so to speak, uh, but you got to work for it. Uh, and so luckily my parents were, were really, really critical in those early days when I was a child, literally, and not necessarily able to speak up for myself, to really fight, you know, every September, going back into the school, getting me back into the mainstream classroom, getting fighting for the accommodations that I needed, which are actually relatively routine. Um, I'm, I'm not able to really write with hands. I need a keyboard to type. Um, I was like the first kid in my school to have a laptop. Uh, I was a grade four. This is laptops were like a billion pounds that didn't have a battery, um, had to be plugged in. Uh, so uh, that was a bit of a challenge, obviously. But, uh, but ultimately, what we were looking for was not accommodations in terms of what I was learning, but really accommodations in how I was interacting with course materials, reducing the physical requirements of education. Um, as I grew up and as I got older, I started to become more involved in the advocacy work. I started fighting with the school more uh, in order to get the things that I needed. And, you know, to their credit, uh, generally speaking, the school was, they wanted to help. They wanted to accommodate me, but they didn't know how. They didn't have the expertise. And often they were blocked by policy. Uh, there were these rules that had been handed down to them, which were extremely rigid and did not anticipate somebody with a physical impairment to be coming through those classroom uh, walls. So if we flash forward to the early 2000s, uh, it's time for me to go to university. And uh, I, uh, of course, had to make a decision where did I want to go. Um, things have obviously improved by this point. I was in elementary school in the 90s and the 80s. Um, but when I am applying to university, um, you know, I'll never forget, distinctly remember, um, I went to a university here in Ontario uh, for a visit before uh, going to school. And the university, uh, there's a rep who met me up front at the, at the gates. They took one look at the wheelchair uh, and they said, ooh, yeah, you're not going to want to come to this university. Uh, it is not wheelchair accessible. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to survive here. Um, you probably shouldn't come here. Um, and I was like, okay, so 
are we going on a tour or, uh, and the rep said, basically they were like, I don't see any point in you having a tour here. Uh, so we loaded up in the van and drove back home. Um, and I was really upset. I was frustrated. Uh, flash forward a few months, it was the only university that I did not get accepted to. Um, all the other ones I applied to, I was accepted to. Seems a little bit interesting. And it goes hand in hand with this idea that uh, I've been told, my family's been told, many disabled families have been told to hide the impairment, hide your disability from the university because they won't let you in if you have an impairment. Now, as it turns out, that is predominantly not the case. Uh, most universities, like almost all of them, are becoming more and more accommodating, more and more accepting of people with a variety of disabilities. Um, having said that, you still you need to advocate along the way. You need to fight for it. And you know, it comes down to this idea that ultimately, if I have the tools that I need, if I have the accommodations that I need to take out the physical aspect of education and allow me to operate from the theoretical, the intellectual, the creative side, suddenly I'm not the problem. Suddenly the problem is that we've built a classroom that expects people to not have muscular dystrophy. And so I think that is actually a really important thing that, that has informed a lot of my story was taking comfort in the fact that I was not the problem, that I was not the one that was wrong. I was not the one that was deficient. Um, coming back to that repeatedly, I think is critical because it means that you have the confidence to, to go in and fight for what you need. Definitely. That is amazing. Honestly, uh, it's so great to see the progression that schools have taken to make them more inclusive. Obviously there's lots of room to improve. Yes. It is, but it's great that improvements are being made. Yeah, I would say it's it's a different world that we're looking at right now um, in you know 2020 than we were in you know 2000 than the world we were looking at in 1990, the world of 1980, 1970. Um, we have to remember that uh, mainstreaming, uh, the idea of bringing disabled students into mainstream classrooms, is historically an extremely recent phenomenon. Uh, we are really just starting this work. Uh, and so there are tons of problems that we run into regularly. Um, some of those are structural, some of those are system or policy-based, and some of them are attitudinal. Um, we have a not insignificant number of professors in Canada, in the United States, around the world, who believe that the academy is not a place for disabled people, um, that do not believe that they should be making accommodations for disabled people, or worse yet, uh, are reluctant to believe students that have non-apparent disabilities to believe that they are disabled and rather believe them to be cheats or uh, somehow trying to game the system uh, to get an easier pathway through. So, um, you know, there are lots of challenges ahead of us, but we're also only like 30 years into this journey in some ways, which, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Uh, it wasn't built in 30 years either. Definitely. So on to the next question. Was there a definitive moment that sparked your interest in the relationship between disability and pop culture? Yeah, th there was a couple actually. I think like in 
in a lot of ways, like I think this is so corny, but uh, like a lot of academics, they look at their research as their life's work. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that is that is really true of, of my experience. Um, so, you know, I remember being, uh, so when I was really young, I was like five, six years old. Um, and my parents asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, and I told them I wanted to be a Ghostbuster uh, because I loved the movie Ghostbusters. Uh, and, and they were like, well, okay, we see some problems with this game plan. Uh, ghost busting is not an accredited institution, uh, not a thing. Um, is there anything else you want to do? Uh, and my solution was, oh, okay, well, if I can't be a Ghostbuster, then I want to be a fighter pilot because <laughs> I love the movie Top Gun. And so my parents were like, ooh, geez, you are definitely not physically capable of being a fighter pilot. Uh, that's definitely also not going to happen. But you know what? We're going to wait for you to grow out of this. Uh, that'll be cool. Um, and so they did. They waited. And a few years later, they again asked, you know, Jeff, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a professional bass fisherman uh, because I love the TV show Bassmasters that was on television at the time. And so there was suddenly this like very obvious trend where I was like just wanting to be whatever it was that I was watching. And I remember when I was sort of early as a preteen, 10, 11 years old, I started to realize that I wasn't seeing people like me in the media, that I was watching all these movies and television shows, listening to all this music, I was reading comic books. And whenever I saw someone who looked like me, it seemed completely foreign these characters did not reflect my life at all. They were these like bitter and angry characters, twisted villains, or they were these like happy-go-lucky in desperate need of care. They were these burdens that needed to be cared for that were very one-dimensional. They were really just there to be an obstacle for someone to deal with. Or they were these like over-the-top heroes. These were like the, you know, the Terry Foxes of the world. Uh, and I looked at all of these images and said, I don't see myself in any of these things. And as I talked to more and more friends of mine with different disabilities, we realized that you know, we all had similar experiences, that we weren't hearing our story in any way. And so when I got to university and I entered into a media studies program, I started to get interested in knowing first, how is it that we talk about disability in the media? And then perhaps more importantly, why do we do it? And what can we learn about the ways that we culturally produce disability through popular culture to do better in the worlds of policy, in the worlds of education, in the worlds of just generally being good human beings? Yeah, that's really interesting because it is so important to really see yourself reflected in movies and media and that's like a significant part for a lot of people in their childhoods. And I know a lot of people who feel underrepresented in the movies and with toys, there's no toys that look like them. It's like significant mm. when they grow up, like reducing that change. But um, is there any changes that you would specifically like to see in the near future with disability in media? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some really easy things we could do. Number one, stop hiring non-disabled people to play disabled characters. Uh, that's a really simple one. <laughs> Just don't let Eddie Redmayne in your like studio yard. Just 
prevent Eddie Redmayne from being in more movies, please. Um, he's just like, he's like a crab. He's just like scuttling <laughs> from one shell to another uh, for maximum profit. So number one, stop hiring Eddie Redmayne, I suppose. Um, I, which uh, clearly I'm about to be assassinated by uh, Eddie Redmayne fans. I apologize. I mean, so I think, you know, hiring disabled actors, there are so many super talented disabled actors out there. And the best part about hiring disabled actors is when they are given a script, they're able to look at this and say, yikes, this is terrible. This is not at all what disabled people experience. You should rewrite this. Um, so, you know, you look at things like uh, ABC's show Speechless. Um, this is a show that is predominantly written by a disabled man, Zach Ayner, uh, has writing credits on most of the episodes, and you've got a main character that's played by a disabled person um, that actually has a disability. Uh, by and large, the best representations are ones that have deeply included disabled people in the production of the media. So I think that's number one. I think number two, another really easy little tip, anyone out there creating media, this is a really simple test. When you're writing a story, take the term disability out and replace it with another marginalized community and ask yourself, does this seem creepy, weird, offensive, or wrong? So for instance, we are really happy to tell stories about a uh, boy with autism taken to prom. If you substitute boy with autism out and place in boy who wears glasses into that storyline, is it a compelling story? Is it an interesting story? Not really, not exactly. Boy with muscular dystrophy graduates high school. Boy who is black graduates high school. You start to see the ways in which disability then in these stories is acting not as a personhood or a moment of identity, but rather is being used strategically more as an object within the film, an object within the story, a convenient way to generate emotion, or it's being used as a way to simply move the plot line forward to give it an appeal, or it's just uh, an ability trying to like get like that diversity quotient up. Uh, this would be what uh, Mitchell and Snyder refer to as quote narrative prosthesis, uh, in which disability is used like a prosthetic leg to prop up these stories. The answer here then is tell disabled stories authentically. Tell stories not because they're about disability, but tell stories authentically about the people who just happen to have disabilities. I think that is what is actually at stake here. Not stories of impairment, but stories of diverse people. I've seen it like disability used in charities so often, which it's kind of sad because, for example, if you were to put a black person in, people would consider that racist but but they don't see an issue with using disability it's almost like disability doesn't have the status of a marginalized group so people really use it as feel they can and i think it's really interesting with what you said because definitely people have been using non-disabled actors to play disabled people for years and no one's really seen a problem with it and there's been like a recent uprise with a recent film in the media of mm -hmm. people speaking out against this and saying it's inappropriate and the response has either been people 
realizing like, oh yeah, I can see why that's problematic. Like we don't do that with any other marginalized group. And then the other half of people being like, oh, this is just people being like too sensitive. You can really see like the split margin that's not really there with other yeah. like minorities. Yeah, I think a large part of that is driven by our conception and understanding of oppression. Um, I think that when we when we think about just casually speaking, obviously there's lots of different opinions on this, but I think casually speaking, if we think about racism, if we think about sexism, if we think about homophobia, there's this sort of underlying understanding that these people are being incorrectly discriminated against, uh, that we are applying cultural understandings and treating them differently wrongly, badly, regularly. And that is tied really to our cultural understanding as opposed to disability, where we seem to see disability as being not necessarily an inappropriate oppression, but rather an expected reality that the body, the mind is fundamentally disabled. It is lacking in ability and therefore it is fundamentally different. Um, and I think disability or ableism is fundamentally different than racism, sexism, and those sorts of things. But I think one of those sort of cleaves, those lines that separates it out is uh, what we would call the materiality of disability or the corporal nature of disability, the way in which people would say, well, yeah, but isn't it bad to be disabled? Isn't it bad to have a disability? Doesn't it suck? Are you not suffering because you have a disability? Uh, and the answer to that is extremely complex in a way that it maybe is not as complex, or rather it's a little bit, it's easier to point to the cultural side um, where it's like, well, if we weren't racist, then things would be better for racialized people, uh, for instance, where it's a little different in the world of disability. Definitely, yeah. I've seen that so much in society. And just some people, I just, I find that they believe disability is um, a bad thing, although it isn't. It's just another unique difference. And our world needs difference and uniqueness to thrive and really progress. Yeah, I think one of the issues is that there's organizations that definitely like further drive this, but people look to the narrative of the caretaker or like the parent for the story of disability. And that's really harmful because there's definitely a different view and it doesn't let the reality of it speak out. It's like the reality of caretaking. Yeah, obviously like disability is, you know, to use fancy academic speak, uh, is it's an intersubjective moment. Like disability is is created in interaction in a lot of ways. It's it's the interaction between bodies that are different, bodies that are pathologized, and bodies that aren't necessarily. And so, you know, Beth Haler, uh, who's an American academic, uh, did a great content analysis in the US of newspapers. And she found that predominantly the, the respondents in news stories about disability are not the disabled people themselves, but as you said, it's, you know, caretakers, experts, parents. And some might say, well, yeah, they're the experts. They should know best. They do know best. But the issue is that, of course, this isn't to say that people can't understand disability without living it necessarily, but it certainly does say that the priorities and the things that are seen to be important to those without disabilities can be radically different than the desires and the needs and the wants of somebody who is actually experiencing it. So, you know, to give you an example, when I was a child, 
um, I was placed in a device called an RGO, a reticulating gate orthotic. And this was a device that essentially is like a kind of like a machine. It looked like, you know, those like exoskeletons in sci-fi. Uh, so basically they put me in this apparatus and it allowed me to stand and it allowed me to walk a little bit. It was super painful. It was not a comfortable thing. I could only stay in it about 20 minutes at a time. And I fell over all the time. Like I actually, like there's a flat part on the top of my nose from face planting. as so I was using this RGO device. And I'll never forget when there was this one moment with the doctors where my parents and I asked, well, so wait, why are we using this? And the doctor, essentially, like I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, uh, was like, we just assumed he would want to walk. We assumed that he would want to stand and see his peers at eye level. And I realized that there was like this like development priority that actually had very little to do with bodily health. Um, that there is some argument around like bone density and, and whatever. But uh, fundamentally they were like, oh, he doesn't like it. He doesn't want it. Well, we'll stop doing that then. That was like three years later of using this device almost every day. So this is like a great example where it's like, well, yeah, like doctors might know a lot about the genetic makeup of muscular dystrophy, but they're looking at disability as something that needs to be cured, as that, that, that Jeff would want to walk. When Jeff thinks walking is ridiculous, like, well, I, why would you ever want to walk? Um, it seems bizarro to me. Like, it looks like a lot of work. Um, it looks like really strenuous, so, like you're sweating and you're all red afterwards. Um, you like get sore when you do it. Um, you know, I, I drove my, uh, my wheelchair through uh, 650 kilometers from London to Ottawa and, uh, I didn't break a sweat. So, you know, tell me more about how walking is so great. Yeah, it is really interesting to see how like caretakers and doctors are focusing on fixing the impairment and then society is like oh yeah like let's do that like let's be so helpful and fix all the impairments like this is going to be great but really there's societal barriers that are definitely more prominent when i was learning how to do my job at camp i would be like presented with program and i'm trying to like like change the kid i was getting to work with to be able to do it and then i was like well i could just change this program like why are we doing this in the first place? And it just is so much more effective. Yeah, it's like there's this belief that, you know, within every disabled person, there's an able-bodied person trying to get out. To turn a phrase, uh, that seems to be the, the, the driver behind it. Um, and I think we are also very good at, at telling disabled people that they should want to be different, that they should behave differently that they should go through behavioral therapies, that they should go through medication, that they should go through surgeries, because in their current form, they are deficient. Now, mm -hmm. I wanna put that on one side, and I, I do wanna turn though to the other side of the table, which says, for some people, disability is suffering. For some people, it is extremely limiting. Mm -hmm. For some people, it is super awful. And so, you know, for all the people that they're like, whoa, stop being so woke, Dr. Preston. Both of those things can be true. Uh, fundamentally, both of those things can be true. And I don't think that one invalidates the other. I think that we need to make room for both sides. We need to make room for both the experience of suffering and the ways in which accessibility will not help everybody and the ways in which there are a ton of people who right now are disabled by paper. 
that are disabled by the words that we've written on a piece of paper, whether it is the diagnostic word that we've written on that says you have a mental illness and therefore you can't care for yourself, whether it's the policy document that we passed at Queen's Park, which says that disabled people get to live in poverty on ODSP, uh, earning like less than $12,000 a year, uh, hasn't been upgraded ever, is far less than what CERB pays out to non-disabled people when they were losing their jobs at the beginning of COVID. It is these paper barriers that are just as important, just as significant, and just as disabling for some people as the biological differences that can also be really awful. Definitely. I was just going to mention about how that pathologically curing and stuff how the doctors always put that on the dis disabled person. I'm sure like that would really cause a confidence issue and really lower your self-esteem because they're basically telling you, you aren't good enough, we need to change you. And that is honestly not right to me at all. Like, uh, like obviously there's room to, for medications to help with if you have pain or if you have really trouble with something, of course. But no one should ever tell you that you aren't good enough the way you are. Yeah, it's complicated, right? It's, it's, it's really, really messy and complicated. I think that the medical world is, is trying and has been trying to separate out the, the diagnosis from the person um, in the ways that they understand it. Um, but of course, like interactions with doctors are quite short. And especially if you're a young person, uh, interactions with doctors, that like, you don't have the, like, the language or the history or the education to fully comprehend and understand the things that they're doing and the ways that they're approaching this. Uh, and so you start getting these sort of diagnosis that says, you cannot do this, you cannot do that, this will not be a thing, this is your prognosis, this is what happens for most people in your case. Uh, and it's hard to not have that start to imprint. Uh, it, it's hard for that to not start forming the way that you understand yourself, forming the way that you see yourself, and routinely being told, well, your occupational therapy, that's on you. You've got to do the stretches. You've got to comply. The medication, well, if you don't take your pills, you're not going to get better. You have to comply. That regiment of care is on you. And therefore, we have fixed these problems. So if you're not going to benefit from the treatment plan, then it's because you're not doing it right. It means that you're deficient in a worse way. It's not just your body that's deficient. Now it is your, your attitude that's wrong. You know, the only disability in life is a bad attitude, quote unquote, as the internet continually tries to tell me. Thanks, WebMD. Uh, figured it out. We figured it out. It's just your bad attitude. That's the problem. That is why you have an amputation. <laughs> little dark. Um, so number one, so, you, know, that, you know, we have this, this sort of that idea. Um, and then we also have this idea that it's like, well, you're not the moral thing, right? Uh, the moral model that, well, you're just not, you don't have enough focus. You don't have enough determination. Um, you're not uh, diligent enough in your stuff. You're lazy. That's where I think the really insidious nature of the ways in which we pathologize disability and medicalize uh, impairment that's the tough stuff, you know, that's the stuff that I, I think really weighs on people in ways that is very difficult to articulate. Um, very, very difficult to articulate. Um, yeah, then we, then we wander into the worlds of the unconscious uh, and Freud and all the psychoanalysts. <laughs> and we get psychological. 
Yeah, that's what I like to do. <laughs> um, so we'll move on to the next question. Could you tell us about your program, Mobilize? What inspired it and what impacts do you think have came out of it? For sure. So uh, many, many moons ago, many, many moons ago, back in 2007, I wanted to go to the movies. Uh, I was in university. Uh, it was super stressful. It's November. Uh, so we're talking like midterm season just ended. And it's like just right into finals. Basically, uh, you know, you get that like one week where you don't, where you have like 10 minutes to yourself. So uh, I'm sitting there. It's like the end of November. And I decide with friends, let's go and check a movie out. Let's go hit a movie. So we go to Cineplex. Uh, which down the road, I was living on campus at the time. We see a lovely film. I actually don't remember what film it was. I'm sure it was something just like super trashy. And the movie lets out and I walk out and my ride's not there. And so I'm sitting there and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. I call, they say, well, we were there, where were you? I was like, well, I'm sitting out front as always. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And at 3 a.m., I decide that it is time for me just to walk home. Because this is what happens to people in wheelchairs that need accessible transit, is that they are routinely left behind. Either the ride does not show up, they're forgotten about, there's a miscommunication, or they cannot get a booking at all. And their solution is they have to drive home. And so uh, it's like end of November, it's snowing, and I had a ride, so I didn't bring a winter jacket or gloves. I had a light jacket and that was it. And so I drove home, you know, it's about a 25, 30 minute wheelchair drive from uh, the Cineplex to where I was living in Res. And uh, I remember I'm going down Western Road and I'm thinking, I don't wanna do this ever again. I'm so cold, like I can't feel my face, can't feel my hands, I'm freezing, this is the worst. Uh, I'm not going out again. I'm just going to stay home. There's no point in me going out. It's just a huge inconvenience. I get trapped all the time. I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. And then I got home, got to bed, got warmed up. And I realized that it was kind of ridiculous that my solution here was to simply not go out anymore, to just stay home. That my plan was, well, if the world is not accessible to me, then I will simply not enter the world. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, being the fact that I have a PhD in media studies, like not going to the movies is like kind of a threat to my job, I think in some ways. So that's not really a thing. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that people every day in Ontario in wheelchairs are forced to do it on, the, on their own, whether it's the blazing heat or the freezing cold, the rain, whatever it is, if you want to be a part of this community, you have to do it on your own. And I thought about how interesting that image is. The image of the wheelchair driving home at three in the morning in the snow, simply because we could not manage to get an accessible vehicle from one point to another on time. So if you flash forward then a few months, it's now January, uh, I'm sitting around with some friends having some pop and chips, and we start having this conversation. And the question is, if someone like me were to be elected prime minister, how would they get to Ottawa reliably? Because at the end of the day, most times I fly, my wheelchair is destroyed, like fully incapacitated, destroyed, uh, because airlines have very confusing and very inefficient policies on protecting wheelchairs. If I were to take the train 
Uh, that might work, but there is only one wheelchair spot in every Via Rail train. So if there are more than one wheelchair users that needed to get to, to Ottawa that day during those timeframes, I would not be able to go. And at that point, um, Greyhound had wheelchair accessible buses. They've since canceled that. But uh, when they did have the buses, they would often forget to book the accessible bus. So you would arrive at the Greyhound station and you would be assigned to a bus that was unaccessible. And the accessible bus was in like Calgary doing something else. And so what we sort of jokingly, I said, well, I guess you could drive yourself. And, you know, I had some friends that were some engineers and we started to think about this. And we said, well, wait, is it physically possible to drive an electric wheelchair from London, Ontario to Ottawa? And so we started doing research. We went online. This is like to show you how cool me and my friends were in university. You know, like a lot of students are like at the seeps and we were like back home crunching numbers about battery efficiencies and duration of drive. Uh, and so what we discovered was that, as it turns out, on a battery charge on my electric wheelchair, I could go about 75 kilometers on one charge, which meant that if I had two sets of batteries and I stopped every night to charge, I could essentially hop from city to city and charge at night and then move on to the next city, essentially. And physically, yes, it was possible. Uh, and it would actually only take about two weeks of driving. Um, if you drove about 90 kilometers, give or take, uh, 70 to 90 kilometers a day. Uh, and conveniently, we had little towns. We had towns along the way that we could stop at. And so that night I went to bed and <laughs> the last thought in my head was, I'm deaf going to drive my wheelchair to Ottawa. That's 100% going to happen. Now that I know it's a possibility, I feel like I have to. I feel like I have to do it. And so we did it. We started, we pulled the team together. And the plan was basically to drive to Ottawa to give this visual representation of the lack of accessible transit. And then as we were going, stop in each of the communities and talk to people, go to the city government and talk about the problems that they're experiencing and provide them options and, and, and ideas on how to do better to stop and talk with service clubs about how they could get involved to try and make accessible transit a possibility to talk to then provincial government when we got to Toronto, and then hopefully to talk to the federal government when we arrived in Ottawa. And so on May the 5th of 2008, I set off from the front steps of City Hall uh, to drive my wheelchair over the next two months from London to Woodstock, to KW, onto Mississauga, to Toronto, and then all the way up the milk run from May to the end of June, where I arrived 649 kilometers. My wheelchair died uh, with one kilometer left to Ottawa City Hall. So one of my support workers pushed my 350 pound electric wheelchair uh, the final kilometer in just a torrential downpour uh, to make it the rest of the way to Ottawa. That is determination. It was like we had come so far and like we the whole time we had this worry about like what if the wheelchair just straight like dies like what if it just blows up um and uh or like what if I'm hit by a car but that's like less of a concern for me um it'd be a great way to die I suppose uh what a story um but uh but we were like what if the chair dies and we had we only had one major issue 
um, there's a there's a really big hill in Durham, Ontario, uh, outside Hamilton. And uh, I have a bit of a need for speed. I like to go fast. Uh, I always go however fast the wheelchair can go. Uh, and so I was booking it down that hill. And apparently the back wheels were going faster than the motor. And what happens when that happens is it actually sends a reverse current back through the system. Uh, and so we melted some wires uh, mm -hmm. on the bottom of the chair. So if you have an electric wheelchair, don't go too fast down that giant hill in Durham. Um, <laughs> just a heads up. It was relatively fun until the smoke. Then it was a little less fun. That like, do I need to throw myself to the chair? But no, it all worked out. And so we were like, we, we, that was the only issue we had. Relatively minor in terms of repairs. Uh, and then the wheelchair just straight up died uh, one kilometer away. We were literally at the one kilometer mark because we had stopped to like gather things to be ready for the final push um, and to let the media team get ahead of us. And yeah, the chair wouldn't turn back on. And that was that. Was that. I fried. That is quite the story. Yeah, it was a whole thing. It's, it's wild to think back now 12 years later and kind of reflect on it. Um, it still seems very odd to think about doing it um and to be able to say that i've done that it's it's that's weird <laughs> <laughs> it's very cool though it's very cool yeah it was fun like while we were doing it like friends were like well what are you going to do next like how do you top this and i was like well like i could do canada i guess but like it's kind of been done and so like i don't know about that so then the joke the running joke during mobilize was uh that uh, mobilize march 2.0 uh is i'd be on a skidoo and I would skidoo the seven seas, uh, sort of what we were talking about. And uh, but I would definitely be eaten by a shark. So uh, that uh, that didn't go forward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't be good. No, no, it wouldn't. It would not be ideal. I'd prefer not to be eaten by um, any fish, really, big or small. Yeah. All that would be bad. Okay, so what are your thoughts on the support programs for disabled individuals in post-secondary institutions? And how do you think they can be improved? Yeah, you know, we, we have some work to do in, in post-secondary education. Um, we, we really, really do. Uh, I think things are improving. Uh, they're improving in large part because of things like the Human Rights Commission mm -hmm. um, and disabled people that have the courage and the energy and the strength to fight for their right to be educated. Um, so we've had some really important human rights findings, uh, rulings rather, that have helped to move forward accommodations for students with disabilities. I think there's a couple things though. I think number one, we need to dramatically increase the size and scope of our uh, accessibility services uh, on campuses. And, I, and I'm not talking locally, I'm talking everywhere. Every single university, every college in this world needs to have much bigger teams uh, to support students. That means helping students find solutions that work for them. That means working through all the documentation uh, to ensure that people are getting the things that they need to have. And it also means thinking about what would a world look like if we didn't need documentation? What would a world look like if we didn't require people to prove that they were disabled, but rather what if we actually built the world to be accessible for everybody? Uh, this would be what we would call universal design, um, for instance. Uh, I think there needs to be more funding. Um, there needs to be more funding, not just for students to get access to equipment, but there needs to be more funding to help actually train disabled and non-disabled people who are teaching 
within the classrooms mm -hmm. to better understand how to be accessible, um, to be able to use technology, things like FM transmitters, to understand how to caption videos and why that's so important, to understand how to design multimodal classrooms for people with learning impairments or ADHD, for instance. Um, all of these things are, are in huge, dire demand, um, and there's just no support for it. Um, so I think at the end of the day, the biggest thing, universities need to realize that disabled people have always been a part of the university. It's now time to actually make it so that they can be actively a part of the university without having to hide or struggle to be better than their peers in order to survive. Definitely. I've also seen that in elementary schools and high schools, there's they need more support with the increase in mental health too. Absolutely. That needs to be done. I know in high school, I, I really struggled trying to get accommodations due to some mental health issues I've had since I was really little. Mm -hmm. And I almost felt like they almost made me feel ashamed just mm -hmm. because of yeah. that's who I am. And that was really horrible to me. Like that really upset me. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and it's very tough too because we, we, we understand or we imagine disability as something that can be tested and validated through medical mm -hmm. practitioners. Uh, but of course, like for mental illness and really a lot of the non-apparent disabilities, it's, it, there's not like a blood test uh, to, to do on this. It's not that there's a genetic test. And often people are assigned labels that are just the best fit for that moment, a label that may change down the line. Uh, and so, you know, we, we have this really rigid understanding of what disability is, how it's identified, what we should do about it. Uh, and that is one of those ideas that needs to be in the burn box. Definitely. And I've seen, um, like my grandmother actually has told me about the progression in mental health services and disability services because her mother was schizophrenic starting in her early 20s in the 40s 1940s <clears throat> so you could imagine how um insane that was not insane but very yeah. odd to see because that was not talked about or even really discovered Absolutely. Yeah, it's like it never existed. Yeah. So we have this problem where we often, like people will look at, uh, you know, like they'll say that the rise of mental health in, mm -hmm. um, in high schools and universities right now in young people, and they say, what's wrong with our young people? Um, and I would actually fire back and say, no, it's, this is a reflection of our system enhancing and improving. Um, that all of those mental illnesses, all of these learning disabilities, they existed before. We weren't tracking them. We weren't diagnosing them. And these were students that weren't going through the system because they weren't surviving the system. Yeah. Um, and so why do we have more students with mental illness and mental health challenges in university right now? Probably because we're doing a better job supporting them through elementary school and high school so that they actually are getting the grades and getting the knowledge in order to come to university and their families aren't being necessarily bankrupted or disadvantaged in the same ways. Now, of course, that's, you know, we have a whole conversation there about pharmaceuticals and the lack of that type of thing and the ways in which there is still a tremendous disadvantage for people with mental illness. But um, I think that's, you know, one of those things where we need to think more critically and more creatively about how we understand and consume disability. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I thought it was really interesting when you're talking about your journey to become a professor and how one of the strict things was policies and how places were struggling with that because I went to an elementary school that was governed by its own board. And like the more I learned about universal design, I, like the more I realized that's how my classrooms were. And then I got to high school and it was not the same environment. And the accommodations that they could give had like a strict layout of how they could give accommodations and mm -hmm. i just really think like flexibility is just so key in accommodation. yeah because i think it, it means letting go of this idea that some are deserving of special mm -hmm. accommodation and others are not to me you know i like i really enjoy the phrase or i i try to live by the notion uh that i don't do special needs i do human needs um, because I think ultimately we all have different needs. We all have accommodation needs, whether or not we have a diagnosed disability. Um, they're just fundamentally different. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, all three of us are sitting in rooms right now with lights on. Light bulbs are an accessibility device. That's an accommodation device because our eyes don't function in the dark. Um, you know, we're all sitting on seats. Mine's a motorized big seat and probably a little bit more expensive than yours. Uh, maybe not, no judgment if you've got that, you know, those gamer seats, but you're sitting on seats because the human body was not meant to stand all day, every day. These are all human needs, not special needs. That is really interesting. Honestly, I've never thought of lights and seats like that just because they seem just a basic thing that we know. And... I think disability should also be seen kind of like that in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've always wanted in my, in the first year class, uh, exploring disability, it's an introductory class at King's disability studies. Um, unfortunately we break it, we have to put in rooms that have the chairs like bolted down. Um, but, uh, I've always joked if I ever get a classroom that doesn't have the bolted down chairs, I want to go in on the first day beforehand and I want to remove all the seats, take all the chairs away and then have these students come in and be like, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, seats are actually a special need. Um, you know, I just assumed everyone would have an electric wheelchair like me. So you guys are going to need to go and, and get some accommodation. If you get some documentation that shows that you're not able to stand for three hours, that you are in need of a seat, you know, I'm sure we could apply for some funding maybe, and we could buy you a seat that fits your needs uh, maybe, but you will need to pay for most of it probably. But, but it's okay, we're, we're here for you. We're gonna help you through this, but you need to get a doctor's note for that chair. Yeah, just to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. I think it would be very interesting. I think people's reactions would go many ways. Yeah. I think so. I think so. There's definitely going to be one student who is like, are you serious? And it's just going to like walk out. They're like, oh, yeah. well, I'll see you. <laughs> and there's also yeah. going to be other people that are like, wow, this really like got me thinking and un really understanding disability in society. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I've always felt that if we treated everyone the ways that we treat disabled people in terms of require a burden of proof, burden of change, lack of voice, we would, we would not stand for that very long. Uh, there would be a revolution very quickly uh, if we treated everyone the way that we treat disabled people from a policy perspective, from a systems perspective, from a funding perspective. Um, 
yeah, the, the disabled people are basically living in a, a forced depression and have mm -hmm. been for ever. So I have one last question for you. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people looking to find the courage for advocacy? Yeah, yeah. So th this is a great question. Um, and, and I want to preface it with the statement that I, I fully understand and appreciate that not everyone uh, is, is made to be a self-advocate, not because they don't have the ability, but because they don't have the taste for it. Uh, they don't want to do it. They have no interest in doing it. And that's okay. You know, I'm here for, I'm here for it. I'm here for a world in which you don't have to fight for everything, that you don't have to be out there battling all the time. However, there are a ton of people, an indescribable number of people who physically cannot advocate for themselves, whether it is that they literally are nonverbal, non-communicative, perhaps, uh, that they don't have maybe the cognitive ability or function to be able to get out there and fight and argue for themselves, uh, or maybe they don't have the resources, the time or the connections. Uh, I, I understand fully the amount of privilege that I have growing up in a upper middle class family in Ontario, Canada. I, I get that. I have advantages that many, many other people with disabilities in this country uh, and around the world do not have. And I think that if we have that, if you have those abilities, if you have that capacity to make a difference, I think it's very important that you raise your voice for those who are not able to. When, if we flash back to May, uh, May 4th, 2008, the night before, I was lying in bed, looking at the ceiling, I uh, didn't get a lot of sleep that night. And the thought that kept running through my head was, why am I doing this? Why am I going to drive my wheelchair to Ottawa? No one's going to care. No one's going to listen. This is dumb. I'm not going to finish. It's going to be a failure. People are going to laugh. People are not going to believe me. People are going to say that I'm bitter. People are going to say that I'm angry. People are going to say that I'm privileged. There are going to be nothing but naysayers in this world. No one is going to get along. No one's going to like it. It's a bad idea. Why am I doing this? It's so much safer to just keep my head down, to not say anything, not do anything, just truck along. Just like that night, months earlier, just stay in your room. Don't go out. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that at the end of the day, the world only fundamentally changes if someone acts. And that the mobilized march, the trip to Ottawa, fundamentally, maybe it's a failure. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe no one pays attention. Maybe the wheelchair blows up. Maybe that happens. But I can guarantee nothing changes if I don't do anything. If I don't say a word, if I don't move forward, I know nothing changes, guaranteed. But if I do take the chance, if I do push forward, if I do put you know, proverbial, the proverbial one foot in front of the other, there's a possibility for change. There's a chance that change may happen. And if I'm not the only one, if I am one of many people who are taking a step, if I'm one of many people that is trying to make a difference, that odd, the chance of change happening only goes up. And that if I go out and try to make change, maybe somebody else is out there watching and says, you know what, if you can do it, I'm going to do it too. I'm going to raise my voice as well. And you start to build a network. 
a network of people that all look at the world as it currently states and says, this is not fair. This is not right. This is not the province or the country that we want to live in. If you've had that thought, if you've looked at the world and said, this isn't right, part of the reason it is remaining not right is because we allow it to remain incorrect. We allow it to remain unjust. And so I would like to say to everyone uh, that's listening, to stop and think about yourself and think about the ways in which the risk of you speaking up tends to be lower generally than the benefit of you raising your voice and that there is safety in numbers. The more of us that are speaking out, the more of us that are talking on podcasts, the more of us that are taken to the streets, the more of us that are voting in elections, the more of us that are participating in political parties, the more of us that are telling stories, the more of us that are making movies, the more of us that are making memes and playing video games and playing sports and playing music and being a part of this world, unashamed, unabashedly disabled. That's actually how things change. That is how the world shifts. And that's how we move from being disabled to being merely human. That kind of connects to our mission at Disable the Difference. We are really trying hard to grow and really get the point across that policy change needs to be done and that we need to advocate because we have the ability to. Although, I think some people on our organization have disabilities, but most of us don't. We feel that change needs to be done, even if it isn't for us particularly, because we see the mm -hmm. effects on other people, friends, family, et cetera, et cetera. And we're actually working really hard to get more disabled individuals on our organization to um, have more perspectives and so we can hear their voice and share their voice even more. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I think allies are, are critical because at the end of the day, uh, if you're not disabled yet, you will be. There is no such thing as a human that is going to go through this world without having a disability at some point. Um, you know, people in, in the disability studies world often refer to you as TABs, uh, temporarily able-bodied. Um, I like to look at it uh, differently. I think that disability is actually the foundation upon which humanity is built. That it is not that you have a normal body that falls to disability, but rather we are disabled bodies that are sometimes more functional than others. I think that's all our questions, but awesome. it was great talking to you. That was very um, beneficial. And I think our listeners will really enjoy everything you said. Yeah, we, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. No, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We had a lot of fun talking with you. It was great. That's good. Yeah, and you'll have to bring me back now for a, for a, for a, a talk on memes. We'll do a full, oh, definitely. Uh, full chat on, on internet memes and disability. Uh, your resident meme lord, uh, ready and awaiting. <laughs> for more, you can visit our website at disabledifference.com and visit our social media at Disable the Difference on Facebook and Instagram to learn more about what we do, as well as our special needs online buddy program if you would like to be a buddy or volunteer. And that is all. Thank you all so much again, and stay tuned for the next podcast.